1: The FT. Hello and welcome back to FT Science. This week we ask how science can cut the number of animals used in research and testing.
2: Using cells instead of animals for some areas of diabetes research. Diabetes is on the increase, a lot of animals are used and some of the experiments that you want to do can be best done using cells rather than animals and that's allowed one of the UK's leading groups to reduce their animal use
3: by about a thousand animals a year
1: and we learn about the stressful life of an alpha male baboon.
3: The long-term persistently high levels of stress hormones and of testosterone often lead to a compromised immune system and failure of the body to keep up with necessary repairs. In either of these cases, lifespan may be shortened.
1: I'm Clive Cookson, and you're listening to FT Science. Our regular guest, Diana Garnham, Chief Executive of the Science Council, is here with me, and so is my colleague Andrew Jack, the FT Pharmaceuticals Correspondent. And our special guest in the studio this week is Vicky Robinson, Chief Executive of the UK National Centre for the Replacement, Refinement and Reduction of Animals in Research, NC3Rs for short. Welcome, Vicky.
2: Thank you, Clive.
1: Figures from the Home Office, the government department that regulates animal research in Britain, showed last week that the number of animal procedures in 2010 had reached 3.7 million, which is the highest since the 1980s. And this week, the government has set out a new policy to reduce the use of animals in research. So, Vicky, NC3Rs is charged with leading the reduction campaign. Tell us what you're planning to do.
2: Well, we're going to be leading it from uh, a scientific perspective. We think the only way that you can really make a difference to reducing animal use is to engage scientists who really are at the frontiers of knowledge, uh, science and technology and try and engage them in the activity of reducing animal use. And I should say it's not just about reducing animal use. Animals will continue to be used for lots of reasons. I think it's about improving animal welfare as well. So that's equally important to the NC3Rs.
1: So there are two elements. One is to engage more scientists in this very worthwhile enterprise. And the other, I presume, is to use new technologies, for example, stem cells, tissue engineering, using human organs that can be grown in the lab rather than using animals. Is that right?
2: That's correct. I mean, I think we're at a point where there's great potential for using new technologies. And one of the things that we're keen to do is to really widen engagement across the scientific community to get scientists that wouldn't normally be involved in the animal issue thinking about how their work could be applied and exploited to help reduce animal use. So tissue engineering, mathematical modelling and areas such as that would be really important.
1: Diana? Diana? Do you think Vicky is going to succeed in engaging more scientists across the scientific community? That means engineers as well as scientists in this enterprise.
4: I don't think that's impossible. I think younger scientists particularly think very carefully about the way they do the research, not just the research outcome. And I think that's something that we get through um, doing clinical trials and involving patients in, in other fields as well. So I don't think this is that different. I wondered, though, because we have so many international scientists here, whether there was an issue here about the UK being very much in the leadership in this issue and whether other countries and the cultures in other countries were catching up with that.
2: That's a good question. I mean, I think the UK does have a lead and I think it has a lead for a number of reasons and partly because of the work of the NC3Rs. But what we've seen is a lot of interest from other countries, and um, particularly from the US, and um, particularly pharmaceutical companies, are really interested in our work. And I think that's not because it's, it's, I mean, it's important to be nice to animals, if you like, but I think there are real business and scientific drivers here that support their work.
1: What do you think perhaps have been the greatest successes so far for
4: the programme?
2: I think the thing I'm most proud about, actually, is really being able to get scientists to champion this agenda. I think traditionally it's always been seen as an anti-vivisection agenda, a soft science agenda, and I think we've got some of the UK's leading scientists involved in our agenda, and I think I'm most proud of that. And what we've seen from that is real reductions in animal use in particular areas. Uh, for example, some of the people we support are able to reduce their animal use by around about 1,000 animals a year in their own research programmes. And we've also seen the benefits of doing that to the science, providing you know much better models and tools to really underpin some of the research that they're doing. One or two procedures, uh, for example. So using cells instead of animals for some areas of diabetes research. Diabetes is on the increase, a lot of animals are used, and um, some of the experiments that you want to do can be best done using cells rather than animals. And that's allowed one of the UK's leading groups to reduce their animal use by about 1,000 animals a year. Other examples, Paul Marianne a real problem, no treatment. We're funding researchers at Imperial College that would have several years ago used 200 animals per experiment. They're now using 15 because of the work we've been doing.
1: And give us the names of some of these leading scientists who are supporting your work
2: not just individual scientists it's some of the major research funders for example the Wellcome Trust the MRC the BBSRC you know they're big funders that carry a lot of clout we work with the learned societies the Society of Biology for example and very different industry sectors pharmaceutical sector GSK AZ Unilever and so on
1: well one person who has put his name to it is Lord David Sainsbury the former science minister isn't that right
2: David Sainsbury has been a fantastic champion for the NC3Rs. He was responsible for establishing the centre. He's a great supporter of animal research but understands the benefits of what we do.
4: Can I ask a question about the peer review? There was a time, certainly from the charity's point of view, that they found it quite difficult to get reviewers to really think about whether the number of animals listed for use in a an application was right is that still something that needs to be worked on?
2: I think that is still a problem I think the big funders recognise that certainly we look at many grant applications for the Wellcome Trust, the MRC and others looking at the animal research and particularly where it involves dogs, cats or primates and looking at the numbers of animal use but I think across the board scientists need to be better in terms of designing experiments and thinking about the number of animals that they use and we have a big programme of work where we're really helping scientists do that and provide better resources and tools to assist that process.
1: What is the attitude of the anti-vivisectionists, the hardcore opponents of using animals in research at all? What do they think of your work?
2: It's hard to say. Some, I think, are ambivalent. Some don't like the fact. I mean, we actually fund animal research and the research that we're doing on animal welfare. You inevitably fund animal research. So some of them don't like that. I think they uh, are very naive. They think there are alternatives for everything. They think a ban would work. Um, so we don't work with that sector particularly. I mean, we work with responsible groups like the RSPCA that I think really add value, but we wouldn't work with the under vivisection groups.
1: And if you went forward, let's say, 10 years, what do you think? I mean, how radically lower could be the quantity of animals used per test? Any idea?
4: Any
2: oh, sense? I, I think that's really hard to give a number, and I don't want to be sat here in 10 years' time when you're saying, oh, that number's wrong, or, oh, actually, you're really underestimating the number. I think what we need to do is to really underpin this with science and, I think, be ambitious but not you think naive. Some big
4: wins that are possible, though? We could I go think quite really are, further. but I think it's
2: also how you measure it. So if you look, for example in drug development and if you gave the total number of animals that number would probably be high but if you look at the number for each individual drug i think we can bring that down a lot and we've done some work recently for a certain type of drug called monoclonal antibodies where we think we can reduce the number of primates that are used per drug by about 64 percent and we've been working with big pharma across the world to really try and put that into practice
1: well let's hope it works Let's stick with animals and indeed with primates because it's time for a contribution from our friends in Washington at AAAS and Science. Over to Nadia Ramligan.
0: Thanks, Clive. Most people don't reserve any pity for society's most powerful, those CEOs, prime ministers, presidents, and even bosses. Yet a new study of social hierarchy in wild baboons suggests that maybe we should... This research is available online at sciencemag.org. I'm talking with Janine Altman, senior author of the study and professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at Princeton University. Dr. Altman, you spent nine years studying hormones in a group of wild baboons in Kenya. What do your findings reveal about the role of social hierarchy on stress?
3: Well, we were able to provide very strong demonstration that an adult male's rank in the social hierarchy clearly impacts his physiology. Despite the general trend for higher-ranking males to have lower levels of stress hormones, we found that the very top high-ranking, so-called alpha male, exhibited very high stress levels.
0: Aside from measuring hormone levels, did you observe any physical or social effects of stress in alpha males? And do you think the costs of stress outweigh the benefits of
3: being at the top? You raise a particularly important issue that we think lies at the heart of a true understanding of such relationships. We've long known that high rank confers major advantage in access to mate in baboons and many other structured societies. And we've shown that this advantage translates into high paternity success sometimes very much higher for the top ranking than even for the next ranking, the beta male. However, the amount of fighting and the amount of sexual consortships, both of which are very energetically challenging for baboons, were much higher for the alpha males than the beta males, So at least in this situation, it argues for ecological energetic stressors. So do these and other potential costs outweigh the benefits of being top ranking? The alpha strategy is probably a high-risk one, but sometimes one with a high payoff. In the short term, high levels of fighting do incur risk of lethal wounds, for example and time just spent in aggression and sexual behavior may come at a failure to spend enough time feeding and maintaining the body. Perhaps even more important, in the long-term persistently high levels of stress hormones and of testosterone often lead to a compromised immune system and failure of the body to keep up with necessary repairs. In either of these cases, lifespan may be shortened. These are topics of research that we and our collaborators are currently conducting. I do think that baboons can provide insights into identifying the ideal position in a complex society under different conditions. Humans also live in stratified societies, and social status in humans is well known to be associated with health outcomes. Yet many of the precise effects have been difficult to pin down when people have tried to, and they could have their parallels in baboon society.
0: That's Janine Altman from Princeton University. For AAAS, I'm Nadia Ramlagan. Back to you, Clive.
1: Thanks, Nadia, and thanks to AAAS. I must say that as a below beta male, it's satisfying to learn that the alphas pay a significant price for their top slots in the social hierarchy. Though, of course, we don't know how much the baboon findings would apply to people. Andrew, what do you make of all this? Maybe it's best to be in the middle than at the top if you want a, a stress-free life. Yeah, not quite in the middle. I think near the top sounds as though it's best. The I mean the beta males seem to have they get a reasonable amount of sex. They don't get beaten up the whole time and they have less stress hormone and probably live longer. (laughs) It contradicts this idea, doesn't it? Increasingly, of equality is actually better for overall human welfare, at least, how it works in the primates. I don't know how the primates.
4: Also, in the paternity part, I mean, it may be that alpha males breed other alpha males or alpha females, perhaps. So that may be good for a society or not. We don't know.
1: And we mustn't forget that. To be slightly more serious, the people at the bottom of human societies do suffer more stress than, than those near the top and live shorter lives and are less healthy for reasons that are not only to do with poverty but also probably to do with social inequalities. Well, I think that's all we have time for today. Please join us again next week for another packed podcast. All that's left for me now is to thank Diana Garnham, Andrew Jack and Vicki Robinson for coming into the studio, and thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by L.J. Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands.